I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. My name is Ravi Gupta, co-founder of the Arena, and today we interview two candidates for the special election for Michigan's 13th congressional district. This is the seat that was previously held by John Conyers, who recently announced that he's stepping down. Uh, the two folks I interviewed today are two members of the Arena community. Both were hosts for the June uh, Arena Summit in Detroit. Um, first up will be Rashida Talib, who is a former two-term member of the Michigan House of Representatives. Uh, she is a force of nature and a well-known community organizer. Uh, and then next up is going to be Ian Conyers, who's one of the youngest ever elected members of the Michigan State Senate, um, who's been an energetic voice for change on the ground uh, in Michigan and in Detroit. This district includes Detroit and some surrounding areas. We're going to get into a lot of local issues and we'll also talk about um, how we can bring new representation, even within the Democratic Party, uh, to Washington. So let's jump in. Rashida, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. Thank you for having me. So, you know, you are known as a super strong community organizer. And as I was looking at your background, um, I found out that you're the eldest of 14 children. Uh, and I have to think that that has something to do with your approach to organizing. Tell us about how you came up. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of I, I remember uh, folks asking if having a law degree or working at nonprofit organizations were the best things that were useful for me as a, a state representative and as an organizer. And I tell them, no, I think the thing that best prepared me to be a state legislator and to serve the families um, in uh, both the 6th and the 12th district were primarily being the eldest of 14. I think I've dealt with every kind of issue from chronic unemployment to mental illness to the number of issues that kind of go through a family, especially a family in this size of a kind of a family. So yeah, I have seven younger brothers and six younger sisters. So technically I have a bit of a voting block is what I call it. <laughs> um, and so what if, you know, when, when you and I sat down last spring in Detroit, uh, you know, this was before you announced the run for Congress. Obviously, we didn't know the seat was uh, becoming available. But, you know, you took us through the arena team through your approach to community organizing. And, and when you served in the 6th District in the Michigan House, um, you were known for being super strong with what would traditionally be called constituent relations. But I think it's much deeper than that. You want to walk us through like what advice you would be giving to sitting representatives about how best to serve constituents and actually take a community organizing approach to that? Yeah, you know, the traditional way that a lot of public servants on all levels of government have provided constituent services is pretty much, you know, someone calls and they connect them, they give them a phone number. Uh, we, we, we went much, much, much bigger and much more authentic in creating what I call um, a neighborhood service center, which still continues on with the current state representative, Stephanie Chang. And this is a service center that offers 12 hands-on anti-poverty programs from doing free tax prep, which a lot of folks don't understand. Like this is, you know, helping folks get that indivisible savings um, account out there from the earned income tax credits to the different child tax credits. Um, and they don't have to pay a dime to get that done if they're low income. 
Uh, and then, you know, and this is like a couple with $50,000 or less can get their taxes done for free at the neighborhood service center I created. And we went on to, if anybody was on the tax foreclosure list, we actually created a walk sheet similar to what you see in campaigns and went door to door and helped families. Many of them are renters and the landlords weren't paying the rent. And so we connected them to legal assistance, free legal assistance. We went on and created a, we have a right to breathe campaign to kind of highlight and elevate the voices of the families that are suffering from asthma and cancer because of polluting industry. Uh, we went on to help with utility shutoffs, um, uh, some of my favorite things were helping uh, young high school kids fill out the FAFSA, the financial aid form, to, so they can get access to higher education. Um, and the list goes on. What I thought, you know, was, you know, me being, you know, more of a social worker at heart and getting people through everyday issues, I think, uh, was as critical as passing any bill I could I could ever pass through, you know, and, and I've passed several on consumer protection issues. And all those ideas for those bills came from the Neighborhood Service Center um, and the different challenges that families came in with, from mortgage fraud to not being able to get a tax exemption because they don't have taxable income. I mean, things like that, that uh, were barriers and walls that were built around um, issues and or around opportunities that helped better their lives. Uh, it is, I think, to this day, if I was to look back in the six years in the Michigan legislature, that probably was my, uh, that was a legacy for me, but also that just was the biggest and the best thing I could have ever done for my families. One of the things that's part of your legacy is that you were, um, I think you called bullshit, uh, you know, to, to put it, to put a fine point on it, on a lot of um, shady development deals and also, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, quote unquote business development that wasn't in the best interest of your district. And I think, you know, one thing I read about you is that um, you were pretty critical of some of these arena projects that came through Detroit. And, you know, as a New Yorker, um, you know, I see things like, you know, Yankee Stadium coming in where they knock down. Um, a historic landmark uh, that so many of us have memories in, and then they build a stadium with fewer, more expensive seats. Um, tell us what what's going on with this sort of stadium development in Detroit, and why you were uh, critical of some of these projects while you were in the legislature. Well, I served on the on the appropriations committee in the Michigan legislature for six years, and was Democratic vice chair in my last term. And one of the things that I saw is what I call bleeding out of school aid fund, uh, general services, which really helped with city city government, supporting city government, you know, garbage pickup, things that really do impact people's everyday lives. And it was just, it angered me, especially because our city at that time, city of Detroit, was before the bankruptcy uh, was filed. We were suffering tremendously. We, we, we had a hard time paying people's pensions. Um, we had a hard time. Uh, we had what we called, um, you know, days. Uh, so we had four days instead of five days of city government opened. So on Fridays, they'd close down to save money. I mean, things that really did impact our lives. And then around the corner, you know, it started off with um, Marathon Oil Refinery, which is the only petroleum oil refinery in, in, in the state, was right in my back in my the, in my district. And what you need to know is they were bringing tar sands in from Canada, the most crudest oil. I mean, it's crude oil, the dirtiest um, coal right into our backyard to process. And they came to the city council and they said, you know, look, uh, we're going to create 100 jobs. And at that time, 
you know, yes, there was desperation for jobs, um, but they gave them a $175 million tax break, basically $175 million. We were not going to collect in the city, uh, for an expansion to create, uh, uh, you know, to process the tar sands. And at the end, when we looked back, and this is when my eyes kind of opened up to these big tax corporate welfare and tax breaks was we only ended up with 15 jobs. If you calculated that, that's $11 million per job. Uh, and we never clawed it back. And, and those kinds of broken promises that happen, first of all, I don't think I would have supported $175 million for just a hundred jobs. I wouldn't went beyond that. Uh, but then right around the corner, a month before we filed bankruptcy, here comes a billionaire. I mean, this guy built a, uh, basically an empire, uh, Little Caesars, Pizza Pizza, and, uh, you know, wanted to build this, you know, huge hockey stadium dash entertainment center. And fine, you're a billionaire. Go, go build it yourself. Instead, he got in the line in the corporate welfare line. And I think he knew that we were going to file bankruptcy soon. I think he was on, you know, in the back, in the back rooms and knew, knew that it was around the corner. And when they asked for the tax breaks, I was the first one to stand up and say, you know, hell no bullshit, because $18 million of that money for the first year was going to come out of classrooms. And we already had over 30 schools closing in Detroit public schools. And every around the corner, when one school closes, it ruins a neighborhood. It, you know, reduces access to my kids to get better education. I mean, you name it, it impacted us directly and immediately. And the injustice of it, the, the harm and it, that it caused to sit there and give this man, this, this company, uh, this mega billion dollar company, uh, basically $280 million of our taxes to build a for-profit arena where you can't even park there, but for $40, uh, you, you, you know, tickets, everything. We don't get anything back in return. Did you know that he said, Oh yeah, I'm going to hire 51% of Detroiters. They, they didn't even get to 30 or 35%. And we still never got that money back. And so, you know, one other uh, family that you've taken on, it looks like you've You've, you've basically taken on a who's who of billionaires in the Detroit area. <laughs> and one of one family. Well, that I, I hate bullies. If anybody knows me, I don't like bullies. You could be a billionaire, but you know, don't come in and, and target us and, and take from people that don't have. That's the only problem I have with billionaires. Yeah. And you know, one thing, you know, as we were uh, doing research and, and traveling around Detroit uh, ahead of the Detroit arena summit, you know, my friend Chad was taking me around uh, one neighborhood of Detroit and showed me this bridge. And he was like, he started to explain to me that this bridge is privately owned um, bridge to Canada. Uh, and as I was reading about your work, it seems like you've had, you've taken on this family too, who owns a, a privatized bridge and you've pushed them to make more investments in the community. You want to tell us a little bit about what's going on there? So this is a really important bridge. It's a, it's an, you know, international crossing to our number one trade partner, Canada. And, you know, for us to even build one car in America because of NAFTA, a truck has to pass over that bridge seven times. Well, you know, having an international crossing seems cool, but for a neighborhood with one of five children having asthma and, you know, hospitalization among adults for asthma attacks uh, is like three times higher. 
understand that, that 10,000 trucks every single day going through a neighborhood uh, is, har- is, is, is harmful and dangerous, especially when this privately owned, you know, this is a family that owns this bridge, actually got federal money um, to build an interchange connection to basically have those trucks go directly into the interchange. Instead, he turned around and, th- and then I'm not making this up. You can, he actually went to jail for one day. It was a big party in my district when that happened because he decided to build a duty-free Sam's club, Costco looking warehouse and three, you know, tax-free gas stations on the bridge plaza instead of the interchange connection. He refused to build it. And he also began to build a second span without the environmental clearances. So he got, you know, his permits got suspended. I mean, the long story is at the end, I mean, he tried to recall me, basically tried to buy off the legislature and he did. In one instance, we weren't able to get the community benefits agreement language passed um, primarily because of his money, which is ironically he gave to Tea Party conservatives as well as some of the uh, uh, progressive kind of organizations, not realizing that he was playing both of them. But the point being is no matter how many zeros you have towards the end of your, um, your income, you, you should be able to follow the law and you should be able to f- follow through on your promises, just like you do any contract. And so when you first ran, uh, for the sixth district in Michigan house, it was a pretty crowded race and you emerged, I think to, to some people's surprise, um, in a district that's super diverse, um, and you won and then reelected. And now you're facing a uh, what is shaping up to be one of the most crowded uh, fields in the country. Tell us first, um, what made you successful in that first race um, and how what's your strategy moving ahead now in this congressional race, bigger race, uh, higher profile, more expensive? Um, yeah. What are you going to apply from that first race to, to win now for Congress? Well, I don't underestimate the human direct contact. Uh, a lot of people do, you know, mailers are fine, calls are fine, but actually being on someone's front door, talking to them so they can get a sense that, you know, you're going to work hard for them. Um, that is irreplaceable. No amount of mailing, robocalls, polling, uh, you name it, that comes with any campaign can replace a direct contact and conversation you can can have with a family that votes. And so that's going to be the center and core of what we do in this campaign. Obviously we want to raise enough money that we can hire, you know, a dozen field organizers that will be joining me to door knock um, the district at least twice uh, every single community. I mean, there's 12 communities. Many people think of this only as a Detroit district. It's not. There's 11 other cities that are uh, encompassed into the 13th congressional district. So we're going to outwork everyone like we did in 2008 and made history there. Uh, and, you know, yes, there are people with name recognition, but all of that can be be completely replaced when you have that direct human contact people to this day, they don't know how to say my name, but they remember how they felt and they remember the way I served and they remember the work product, you know, what I've been able to produce and what I've been able to do. And the fact that I haven't sold them out, not once. And so, you know, in in talking about people being sold out, I think as frustrating as the Republicans are, we obviously don't have the right Democrats in power either. Uh, and so as you think about what you want to do in that first term in Congress, uh, what are some of your priorities and, and 
what would it look like to take that same fight that you've brought uh, to the sixth district in Michigan and as an advocate outside of office, what would it look like to take that to Washington? What are your priorities? Yeah, it's, it's, it means going beyond just the voting. Uh, so many uh, of my colleagues, even in the legislature, and I can imagine uh, right there on the floor of the Congress, is that many people will vote the right way and then go home um, and show up at events, but maybe not join the movement or elevate the movement. When I say movement, I'm talking about people that are on the ground fighting against corporate tax breaks that hurt our schools or those that are fighting just for equality or fighting police brutality or fighting so many things. No matter what people say about Congressman Conyers, I think in his early years, he was a person that marched side by side with his, his families that he represented. He was on the front lines with them. And, you know, that people, a lot of people got in away from that, including him and others that got too comfortable. You know, it hurts more actually when, you know, Democrats, people that I've supported um, sell, sell us out because sometimes when they do vote the right way, but then they come home and the, and the similar issue is happening. They don't want to get on the forefront. They don't want to come to city council and say, this is wrong and we support you. And we want, you know, the Koch brothers not to dump petroleum Coke on the riverfront. So many things that impact everyone right here at home. Sometimes I think is kind of pushed on the sidelines and people focus so much on what's going on in DC. And so people will know and feel uh, fully represented at home as well as having a fighter in DC, uh, as soon as I get there, they're going to sense that. Look, you know, I've told this to many people too. This is about electing the jury that will impeach Trump. And I would make a heck of a juror because not only will I be there fighting in DC, but I'll also be at home, uh, elevating and engaging people in when, when Trump won Michigan, it was devastating. Uh, for our state to go red for the first time in, since Reagan. And if you looked at the numbers, if we increased voter turnout in Detroit by 2%, we would have won. And I think about that a lot because even though this is a safe Democratic seat and when I win in August, I'm not going to stop. I want to pull out as many people as possible in November elections and motivate and inspire them to come out. That's what people want us to do. They just don't want us to be the typical go there, vote the right way, come home, come to, you know, various things. They want more. And so tell us, um, you know, you might not be ready to share too much, but tell us how the race is going so far. What can you share about what's happening out there? Well, what you can know is that it is crowded. Um, there's obviously the establishment in the Detroit area um, is getting out behind one. Um, and, th and this is typical behind one candidate over the other. Um, but you do have, you know, a lot of people know that there's two Conyers in the, in the race. Um, there is uh, a former state representative who actually works for Maddie Maroon, the man that owns the bridge. She's a lobbyist for him. Um, there's also um, this uh, for, former, well, he's a current state senator, uh, Coleman Young, who's the um, uh, son of the former mayor here who, who just got out of uh, a memorial election um, and lost miserably. But um, again, you have a, a really diverse pot of people. You also have somebody in one of the 11 other communities outside of Detroit. Um, and that's the, the mayor of Westland, Bill Wild, um, who, you know, owes a scrapyard in his communities as a, a so-called business owner. Um, but I think 
for us and what we've been hearing with, uh, in, I've been having these community conversations and they've been really effective in hearing kind of the different issues is that people want someone that will unify all 12 communities. And I think out of all of the candidates, I'm the only one talking about that, or at least talking about all 12 communities versus many of my colleagues only talking about Detroit and one of my uh, uh, opponents only talking about his backyard. I think in closing, I, I couldn't help but ask you about this. Um, I heard you're proud of it. So I'm asking, I'm going to ask you about the time that Trump came to Detroit in August, 2016, before he was elected. And um, you interrupted his speech to ask him a question. So I wanted to ask you, uh, what did you ask Trump and what motivated you? Uh, to interrupt him. Well, I asked him, has he read the Constitution? I just kept screaming, have you read the Constitution? Read it. And, you know, this is the background story is that the Detroit Economic Club for the first time in history had had decided to get rid of the question and answer period for that um, convening, which was less than a couple miles from my home. And it wasn't just me. It was 11 other women. And when I got the call from um, different organizations, uh, including Michigan United and others that said, hey, you know, we got tickets. Would you like to go and join these women? It would give them confidence. I was really scared. I think all the other women were really scared. You should know seven or eight other women stood up before I did. You know, we, we had every two minutes somebody interrupted him. Obviously, me being a former state representative got a lot of the media attention, but every single woman there inspired me. Many of them were, were pushed by the crowd, uh, hair pulled. A uh, couple, one of them got like really shoved like a fist right into her back. Uh, and every single woman stood up, many asking about sexual harassment, many asking about labor issues, many asking about um you know, that just the issue of compassion and equality and not being racist and, you know, you name it, uh, it was brought up, but it was 12 women total, including myself that stood up to Trump. And yeah, I was very proud of being able to do that. But even my own democratic, you know, colleagues and stuff were like, why did you do that? You didn't need to do that. And I'll tell you, when we look back at this time, this really critical time in our country right now, silence is not an option. And you hear it a lot, but I'm, I mean it. This is a very dangerous man that is in the Oval Office right now and trying to be all critical about somebody standing up and interrupting and doing and doing this and that. Uh, this is the least I could have done myself. I want to do more. I want him impeached. And so in closing, tell us how... Uh folks in the arena community can get involved in your campaign. Absolutely. I mean, this is going to be doors and dollars. And many people that probably know about the work of arena know that they've gone to training on, on how to run for office. That's really critical. So people can go to Rashida for and donate and share the information. Um, you know, tell a lot of people about if you have family in Michigan, ask them to come and volunteer. Uh, if you're in, want to come by and work a weekend here, that'll be fantastic. And we'd welcome you with open arms. Um, but just to, to be able to share not only my story, but just, you know, the, the incredible movement out there of having people that look like us, uh, run for office that talk like us <laughs> that want to run for office. So many of us sit back and all these people that so-called inherit 
these positions or, you know, come from the establishment. They're just not doing enough. And so we need, all need to make this more of a national movement and not saying, oh, well, that's just in Michigan and that's a 13 congressional district and it doesn't impact me. Yes, it does. Because somebody like me getting elected brings a really, it's like a huge bullhorn saying, yep, back up because we're coming and uh, we're tired of the same old politics. Well, Rashida, thank you for joining us and good luck out there. Thank you so much for having me. And now we will hear from Senator Ian Conyers, who's also running for the same congressional seat. Let's jump in. Senator Ian Conyers, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Ian, you ran for uh, state Senate uh, when you were 28 years old and you won. And I think that made you at that time the youngest state senator in Michigan history. What was it like running so young and, and what kind of feedback did you hear out there on the doors? That's right. Uh, and actually, just a little bit younger than that, I was 27 uh, at the beginning of 2016 when we kicked off the campaign uh, and turned 28 just shortly uh, after the primary in November. And, you know, on the doors, when we started off, uh, folks would give you the look, give you the once over, but then they're, they're listening. Uh, I think seniors uh, and even the baby boomers, folks who have contributed so much to our country, are excited by a lot of the energy that they see out there. And they know, um, you know, many of them have worked hard to provide an opportunity for us to lead. And fortunately in our case, uh, many of them came on board and were excited to support my candidacy. And so you ran in 2016 in a special election. Um, were you also on the ballot in November, uh, the night that Donald Trump was elected? I was. Uh, so the way it works in Michigan is it's a winner take all primary. Uh, the district is, Fortunately, uh, majority Democrat. And so I went on to face a Republican challenger in November that uh, had a smaller percentage of turnout. Uh, but I was on the ballot. And uh, on that day uh, in November, I was elected as well. And so what was that like, you know, being uh, elected yourself? And so having that, uh, having you know, such a remarkable personal achievement, uh, but also see, you know, Donald Trump elected and, and not only just elected, but elected in part because of a win in your state. It was very tough. Um, you know, I grew up in Michigan and it's been a blue state. It's been a labor state, a place where folks came from all over the country, especially up from the South and around the world to get an opportunity to uh, make their way into the American dream, to have a decent wage and to retire with decency. It's really, it's been promised if you work hard in this country. And now the rules have changed. Uh, and being elected, I'm now a, a red state Democrat. And it's my first time being elected. So I knew there was the need to continue to carry the banner. And I truly believe what we've been pushing for is the right thing to do. And it's been really exciting since then, kind of a low point in early November and early January to see our states in such really disarray and shock is the way to describe it, um, to building, to reaching out and to encouraging more people to run and to reaching out across state lines around the country to see what's been successful has really helped uh, in our state as well. And so before we talk about your run for Congress, tell us a little bit about what's been happening in Michigan in the state legislature. Uh, what's the sort of partisan breakdown um, in uh, the state legislature and what are some of the Democrats' priorities uh, and what have the Republicans been able to do since you've been there? So I, I serve in what's called the trifecta government, which is they own the House, they have the Senate, and they have the governor's office. And in the Senate, I serve in a two and a half to one minority. There's 11 Dems and 27 Republicans. 
uh, and essentially, you know, they'll come and cheer a bit and say, why do you all even show up? And to us, we show up because the issues that matter to us are the issues that have built this state. Uh, and there's been a constant attack ever since getting here, almost unbelievably on the first responders, on teachers, on the pensioners, folks who have contributed to our state for their entire life. Um, we've had two or three swipes from this administration, seemingly really emboldened by the 2016 election to privatize each and every aspect of our lives, uh, taking from schools, taking from infrastructure, Michigan we have uh, for far too long gone without investing in our roads and bridges. Uh, you know, we're in a worse situation than many other places in the Midwest and around the country. And there's just been no real response. So the Democrats have taken it upon ourselves to put up packages of bill that invest in all of those. We actually got so far as putting up an amendment to the budget uh, in the end of 2017 that would spend our state's entire rainy day fund on infrastructure. Additionally to that, we focused on water. I mean, the whole country knows about, really the whole world knows about the tragedies in Flint. We're finding out that's just scratching the surface. Um, there's lead in all of our major cities in the, in the piping that goes up into your home. Uh, and additionally, there's been some instability in the ability of folks to pay. Uh, in Detroit, before the 2016 water shutoffs, we had the, or excuse me, the 2016 Flint water crisis. We had the 2014 Flint water shutoffs where uh, through attempts to privatize so many of our great public resources, they shut off funding to those of us that have gone with the least women, children, seniors had bills piling up with water they couldn't use. And so we focused on those really, you know, greater good types of issues in terms of helping the people that were sworn to elect. And so looking ahead to 2018, um, what are the Democrats prospects uh, for winning back uh, the various pieces of that trifecta? We're encouraged. When you look across the 2017 special elections that have happened in state houses, uh, which are getting near the 40s, you're seeing red seats flipped. Uh, folks coming out that have never voted before, folks switching parties and voting for the candidate that they feel has their best interests in mind. And so in the state Senate, we've got a wonderful opportunity to get closer uh, and if not take the majority, get enough to stop what they call immediate effect. See, when you serve in the minority, which I found out uh, when I got here in our state, since they have the numbers, they can vote something through and then pass what's called immediate effect, which means the bill takes place in 90 days instead of needing to wait for a calendar year. So the closer we get to that, the better. In the state house, there's a firm belief that if we win this governor's race, that we can take back the house and really start to fix the, the lost generation we've had in the last 10 years of an administration that not only hasn't focused on people, but just a real uh, insensitivity towards the needs. Uh, I think you'll see us focus and get excited to fire up folks and get a Democrat in the governor's office. And so you recently announced uh, that you'll be running in this special uh, election for Michigan's 13th congressional district. Um, when will that election be? Have they set a date yet? They have. So the election will be concurrent. It'll be Tuesday, August 7th of 2018. Uh, very excited to offer my candidacy to our congressional district. You know, I started off before running for state rep and then state senate as uh, a precinct delegate. Uh, uh, you know, one of the lowest levels of uh, activism you can get in an elected office, and went after after that to be the treasurer of our congressional district, which is a great task. 
in 2015 of getting together with the mayors from each of the communities that are Detroit and really our surrounding Western suburbs. And so it was those same folks within the organization, the grassroots folks that encouraged me to step out there to lead in our legislature. And I'm very uh, confident we'll have a lot of their support uh, in this next endeavor to lead our congressional district uh, and become a part of a delegation that needs to have a clear and strong voice about the needs of Michigan people considering the administration has taken such serious swipes at key needs in our state. You know, we're the Great Lakes state and to see President Trump attack our water, I think that's a, a, a real disservice to not only Michigan, but to the entire country. If you're not protecting fresh water, if you're not investing in it, um, you know, where are we gone from there? And so this is very likely to shape up to be a super crowded primary field. And I imagine, you know, based on you know, what we learned uh, in doing our arena summit in Detroit, uh, so many of you know each other. Uh, so what, what are you going to do to break through such a crowded field and get your message across? Uh, and the second is, uh, what are your predictions for um, the sort of tenor of the debate in this primary? Like, do you think this stays cordial or uh, does it go the way of uh, a lot of other crowded primary fields and, and get pretty uh, brutal and aggressive pretty fast? Thanks for that. Um, we think, uh, you know, the more the merrier. Uh, everyone's got a right to stand up and run. And so competition is a wonderful thing to see folks step out and get in a race to, to put their resume up. And our hope is that each of the voters in the 13th Congressional District examine their commitment to public service, examine the record uh, and the ability and skill set of each of the folks running. Uh, and with that, it reminds me of our first primary shotgun start a large crowded field with former legislators in it. That's the kind of race we like. Um, and when I started off running, actually before the state Senate seat, I was running against an incumbent Democrat for a state rep seat. And it was only when a legislator was removed that the state Senate seat that I currently serve in became open. And so remembering that my core commitment was to be a disruptor and was to shake up the status quo is exactly what we'll offer to the constituents of our district. And I think it's going to come down to folks who are on the doors, who have a personal connection and commitment to staying grassroots. And at the same time, those who have prepared themselves to make their relationships and, and execute in Washington, D.C. from day one. Um, it's a really unique situation. As you mentioned, there's a special election. Whoever takes the 13th congressional will actually start in November to finish out the unexpired term. So in our state, this leader will have the opportunity to have a two to three month advance on what we're hoping will be a large democratic incoming freshman class. For Michigan, that means everything. It means transportation. It means someone who can fight for water rights, but it also means someone that understands from day one how to move around in Washington and how to get back and forth between Detroit with the energy to serve the district. So. Very excited in terms of the tenor uh, and how it will be in Michigan politics. Uh, we hope that it stays civil. We want it to be about the issues, not about the personalities. Got it. And, you know, the elephant in the room in this race is your last name. Um, and you know, not only are you running uh, for a seat uh, that has uh, been in your family for a long time, but uh, you're not the only Conyers in this race. Um, what are you hearing on the ground uh, about sort of the voters' appetite? Uh, 
for another Conyers, uh, as they would put it probably uncharitably. Uh, and what are you doing to assert your independence um, in a race where, uh, based on what I know about you, um, you, you have a lot of respect for your family, uh, but also want to be your own individual? Absolutely. Um, and great question. Thank you. Uh, our voters want to know, outside of the name, what have you done? Uh, fortunately for me, I've got the chance to you know, have had these relationships with folks for a long time. And the good news there is they know outside of being a Conyers, I'm a, you know, one of eight brothers and sisters. I grew up very differently uh, and know what it's like to personally go through some of the issues their family's facing. Uh, you know, I know what it's like to not have mom or dad have any savings to look at that FAFSA form and say, really no savings uh, to be able to pay for college. Uh, I know what the issues that face Detroit are in terms of, the struggle against really tough lacks of public safety and the issues that have plagued Detroit for a very long time. And so for me, it's been uh, really to the national level, explaining who I am and letting folks know about my, my history, not only as a Detroiter, but as, you know, a brother, as a, as a, a family member there. Um, and with respect to uh, the appetite for that, it, it's very strong. Uh, the favorability of the commitment to service, not only of the congressman, but of his father. Uh, folks remember, you know, in the times of need throughout this country's history, folks have stepped up into that void. And so I'm excited for them to look at it as, yeah, it's a family name, but at the same time, there's an individual behind it. And on the doors and in the senior buildings and out in the community, that's uh, been a very, very positive reception. Uh, to speak to... Uh, the, the, the wit and the ability of the Detroit voter, of the 13th district voter, I always say they don't need a laugh track. If you look at uh, them electing Mayor Mike Duggan, uh, which was an unbelievable election, our seniors, they read between the lines uh, and they know who's been there for them and who's got a great plan. And in terms of in the event that anyone with the same last name or not got in our race, I trust that they'll do the same thing. Who did you see? Who's accessible? Whose cell phone number do you have? That's what makes a difference in Detroit. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that you might hear out there on the trail is um, in, in running for, uh, for Congress, uh, and you're still a state senator, I think some folks might wonder, like, how are you going to be able to balance the two? Uh, so tell us a little bit about, I assume you're, you're going to stay in the state Senate. Um, how, how are you going to be able to stand up a campaign in, in such a short timeline? and um, effectively uh, represent your constituents in the state Senate? Sure, absolutely. Great question. So in our state legislature, we're three days a week from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. in session. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, and what we've done to really make sure that we're not jumping off that boat is to make sure that our core constituent services shift of the staff have been all in district. And so the second that I decided to get in this, I made sure that we ramped up on constituent services within our district, making sure that the needs of our folks are met through and through. Now, I happen to have a large percentage of my current Senate district inside of the congressional district. And so uh, it's serving the same people who I, I will seek to serve at a higher level. And uh, standing up a campaign, it's been, uh, it's been a grind. 
but a positive one as in anything that's worth going for. So we are up in Lansing in the state capitol during the days and making calls on the road on the way home and knocking doors once we get there. But that's the type of energy and the pace that you'll need uh, to serve our district in Congress. The drive back and forth between Washington, D.C., or the flight back and forth, rather, can start to wear on you. And our constituents need to know that who they're sending to Washington has the energy to get the job done and to, to make those rounds. And so it's training for leadership on this side. If you can make it back and forth to the state house, then I'm sure you can make it back and forth between here and DC. Got it. And what is it like trying to raise money for a campaign? That's a, a pretty safe blue district uh, on a, uh, a super abbreviated timeline. So it's, you start with uh, friends and family, folks who've known folks who know you have watched you, uh, grow and have been supportive in the past for us. That's folks who jumped in a crowded state Senate race where they had some real choices uh, to support me uh, over a candidate who's actually the dean of the Michigan House. Uh, My first race, I ran against a man named Fred Durhall, who's very respected uh, senior member of the Michigan legislature. uh, And he'd always use the analogy, you have the choice between the seasoned veteran or the rookie, the seasoned veteran or the rookie. Well, fortunate for me, the senior said to put in the rookie uh, and building around that, showing that all that they've done and contributed to is for us has been really the message um, we've gone forward with. Now, in this race, um, being in Washington and back and forth there, we've learned it's as much about blocking as it is catching. You've got to get out there in Washington, D.C. and meet the folks who know um, what it takes to put through legislation from a Democratic agenda. And so... Uh, Back and forth between there has been interesting. You want to make sure you're getting support from the right groups, uh, folks who really believe in what you do. Um, And now this seat is going to be important from a fundraising perspective, not only to folks who are living in the city of Detroit or living in the district, but to the entire state. Um, And you've seen us fight so hard to bring Detroit back from what was a historic low of a bankruptcy. And I believe you're going to have all eyes in on this one in terms of what do we send to Washington, D.C. to represent the great news that's been happening in Detroit? How do we put forth someone who understands the needs of the city of Detroit, but also has a proven record of representing places that are not Detroit, someone that's had that experience? And so when we're fundraising, we're talking about not only the city of Detroit, but the entire district. And it's been a message that's been very well received. I think Folks in our western suburbs want to know that someone gets their issues. Folks on the east side of Detroit want to know there's someone that gets their issues. Uh, And for me, having campaigned in both areas, I know their issues are the same. It's just how they're represented and how they're fought for. And so in fundraising, uh, we've led with a message that's about that. It's about experience uh, and the leadership to get things done. And so, you know, in closing, we have a few questions we ask everybody who comes on. Um, the first of which is, you know, one thing people look for in a leader is, uh, you know, the courage to speak your mind. Uh, so what's, what's one view that you hold, um, that's not super popular within, uh, either the, your party, uh, or your district, uh, but that you hold anyway, because you believe it. Well, one issue that I've really fought hard for, uh, and I've taken on a lot of criticism is, uh, calling for the resignation of the Michigan State Police Chief when she made comments calling NFL players uh, ingrids and unpatriotic and really, really disrespected 
the men that go out there and, and play that game for our great country. And stepping forward to the law enforcement community is not something that you do easily. These are folks who put their life on the line each and every day. Um, we've had some real issues in terms of hiring people of color in our state police. And the blowback from that in the state level was real. Um, you know, in terms of folks turning their back on you or saying, I thought I had a friend in you. I've, I've stood with law enforcement in, in many of situations, but on this, it's not something I could support their leadership on. So it, it takes making those tough decisions uh, to get the job done. And it's something that I knew needed to be done. Now the governor disagreed. Um, and it's very unfortunate because in our state, we're at an all time low of people of color being hired on the state police. And we had a very serious issue where a young man was killed with a taser while riding an ATV for a traffic stop. And we have a level of insensitivity like that. It's about far more than the Facebook posts. It's about uh, the inability and the culture of the leadership, uh, which I think flows down to the entire organization. And so to combat that, I suggested serious reforms, largely uh, a truncated path to people of color and specifically officers who are serving right now and joining the state troopers, uh, which has been met with some serious resistance. But it's something I believe in. Uh, I think we've got to get a equal and diverse, whether it's women or people of color, uh, police force. And it's something that we'll continue to, to push for. And so in closing, uh, you know, assuming you, you win this race um, and you uh, represent us both for the remainder of this term uh, and then in the next term in Congress, and then you're running re-election uh, in 2020, um, what record uh, do you anticipate running on? So what do you, what do you anticipate accomplishing in your first, you know, first term and change? So I've ran on uh, civil rights and economic justice, and it breaks down into building jobs, protecting neighborhoods and developing community. For me specifically, uh, it will be bringing back the environment to make jobs flourish in Detroit and Southeast Michigan. Before coming home, I had a chance to work on many projects with Secretary Fox, the former director of the Department of Transportation, a secretary rather. And that is a space where women, minorities, and veterans can specifically get to work with their small businesses. There's an infrastructure bill that we believe, uh, thankfully President Obama got together, but the current administration will likely take credit for, that's gonna release a lot of funding across the country. So bringing that home to make sure that when these projects come to our state, we're ready and we're getting to work is seminal to our candidacy. Uh, secondly, it's continuing the fight for civil rights. Um, the, the, the need to invest in education, the need to support our teachers and that fight for those who are struggling with an intellectual disability has been something I've focused on. Uh, as an activist, something I focused on as a state legislator, and something I'll continue to push for as a United States Congressman. Well, Senator, uh, on that, uh, we want to thank you for joining us. Good luck out there. Thank you so much. And thanks to the arena, uh, the work you're doing around the country can't be replicated. And there's so many folks that are gaining resources and friendships and really the encouragement that they need to step up themselves. So thank you, guys. Thank you.